Again, thank you for being here. If you weren't with us last week, we started a short series um, entitled Thanks, and uh, basically just a simple couple week series that we're going to go through um, over the next couple weeks that will hit on thanks and we'll end it next week. But uh, we talked last week of really the true heart of thanks. We talked about, and we were in uh, the Old Testament, and we talked about praising and worshiping and honoring and adoring and a number of different things with thanks. And, and all of that really is the, the heart of what thanks is. And when my heart is right, then I naturally want to praise and honor and glorify and lift up and do all of the things that we do. And so this week I'm going to kind of continue up or continue on that same thought and just kind of take another step in that direction, but I want to continue talking on thanks and I want to share what to me is the greatest way to say thank you. And I don't know, I I posted this on Facebook and I got very few responses and I don't know if people thought I was asking the trick question or being goofy, but um but I got a couple responses. Somebody said coffee. Um, I'm not a coffee drinker, so coffee says no thanks to me. If you come to me with coffee, I will say thank you, and then I will not drink it because I don't drink coffee. Um, but there's a number of ways that we can say thank you. And I think through all of us, we could probably go through, and I asked this to my wife, and I asked some people up in the office, and, um, and I got pretty much the same response, but let me, let me share to you one of my greatest ways that I feel that anybody can say thanks to me, or I, would, I think as I go through this, you'll go, oh, that makes sense. The greatest way to me that anybody can ever say thank you is simply by doing and acting what's been taught to them. Let me explain. I'm a father of four. I have four children. Three little girls and a little boy. None of them are grown yet, but the greatest way that any of my children will ever be able to say thank you to me as their father is that they have taken what I have taught them in the word of the Lord and taken what I have taught them as their father to grow into adulthood, to be godly young women, to be godly moms and dads, and to trust and to serve the Lord. To me, there is no greater way that my kids could ever say thank you to me as their father than as I grow up to look at them and to see successful families, to see them serving the Lord, and to see them doing what I instilled in them when they were little kids. As a youth pastor, I was in youth ministry for about six or seven years. The greatest joy for me as a as a youth pastor or now seeing some of those kids out of school is to watch them now serve the Lord in any capacity in which they serve the Lord. There's a few of those kids that I've had the honor of serving, whether it be through a small group or whether it be through actually being their youth pastor, that I've been able to to look back over the course of the last number of years and now see them in full-time ministry. There's some of them that I'm able to see and and follow them and, and watch as they just have successful families and they serve in their church. There's others that I see that are not doing as well. But the greatest way that those kids, now adults, some of them, can say thank you to me as their former youth pastor is by 
acting and doing what I have encouraged them to do through God's Word, and then also helping and walking alongside of their parents and helping mold them into young adults and into people. As a pastor, the greatest way that I can see you and you can give thanks to me is by writing me lots and lots of... No, I'm just kidding. But the greatest way that you can ever say thank you to me is not by gifts, is not by any of those things. It's for me to be able to watch you step into service in areas that you never served before. To me, to watch you, some of you have stepped up and you've started teaching classes where you've never taught before. Some of you are active in areas that you've never been active before. Others of you are serving where there's been a long period of time in your lives where you weren't serving. The greatest way for any of you as a church to say thank you to me as a pastor is to serve and act and live the Christian life. And so this morning... As I was studying this past week and as I was going through where I was going to go next with this series and kind of wrap it up and next week we'll be wrapping up the whole series as we go into, um, we're going to take communion next Sunday morning and the whole thought of thanks for Christ and what he has done for us as we go into that Thanksgiving season. But as I was studying and as I was looking and I was thinking on thanks, there is no greater way to me that anybody could say thank you to anybody than to take what they have been taught or learned and to act it out in their daily lives. And so as we went from last week, we talked about last week with the being thankful and, and having our heart in the right place. And when our heart is in the right place, we're naturally thankful. And, and thankful is, being thankful is truly an act of our heart. In times of struggle, in times of hardship, when we can be thankful is an act of our heart. It's all of those things that come together, that wrap together, that allow us to be thankful, which is our heart. And then now this week, as I was going through, and I'm, I'm kind of, where do we want to go with this? The greatest way that any of us can give thanks back to the Lord is to live and to do what the Lord has commanded and prescribed, so to speak, for us to do. And so this morning, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. If you have your Bible, you can join with me there. But we're going to spend the bulk of all of our time this morning out of this passage of Scripture. And I'm not going to go real, real, real deep into the history of this, this uh, one of Paul's letters here. But we're going to, I'll briefly share a couple things. But Paul has written... The first and second Thessalonians, and basically the bulk of these books are really on the second coming and the return of Christ. But we've we're we're coming into this, and Paul in, in here in chapter four starts to say, really, right from the beginning, if you look in verse number one, he says, Furthermore, then when we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so you or so ye would abound more and more. Paul tells them right off the get-go here in this chapter as he's kind of going into transition into another kind of a teaching in his in his letters here, but he he goes right, directs it right to the point. Hey, as you have learned and as we have given you everything that you ought to have 
now go and do it and abound more and more. Paul, I could only imagine at this point, Paul has taught these people a number of things. If you could just kind of take yourself back into biblical days and and to think through being able to sit under somebody like a Paul. Think of Paul who has written so many books out of the New Testament and so many letters that he sent to these different churches. And and I'm going to go through some of the things that Paul may have taught these people here in Thessalonians. Paul may have taught them of his teachings that he wrote in Romans on salvation. The principles, the problems, the practices of the gospel. He may have taken to them the, the things that he wrote and out of Corinthians and the sanctifying truth, warning them of division and disorder, the difficulties, the disbelief that can plague a local church. He may have taken them and taught them what he had written to the church in Galatia and talking about separation and truth Warning against legalism and other things that he taught in Galatians. In Ephesians, soaring truth and concerning the church as a body, a building, a bride. In Philippians, he taught on stimulating truth about joy and suffering, sacrifice, service, and sickness. Colossians, he taught a sobering truth truth about Christ, the cult, the Christian. In Hebrews, sanctuary truth. How Judaism is obsolete. Judaism was replaced by better things. We now have a better Savior. We have a better sacrifice. We have a better sanctuary, a better security, a better spokesperson, a better society. I'm sure that Paul took all of these things and throughout the time that he spent with these people and these leaders and all of these things, he probably taught them all of those things. He taught them truth. He taught them the Word of God. And and I'm sure he took all of those things. And when he wrote down in verse number 1, Furthermore, then we beseech thee, or beseech you, brethren, and exhort you. Hey, I encourage you by the Lord to go. Take what you have received and walk. Take it and abound more and more. Take it and go. And as I look through this, and as I started to read, and as I started to study and go through some of these things, I'm sure they dealt with many things that you and I deal with on an everyday basis. And again, not going into all the, the, the history of, of Thessalonians, but we know there was a lot of things that had taken place and came in from the Greek culture that was now infiltrating the church and infiltrating what was going on. And he encouraged them in verses 1 and 2 to go. In verse 2, for ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. He just talks to them and he says, listen, I've given you all these things. We've done all these things. We've taught you all this stuff. Now, listen, listen, take it and go. Take the commandments that have been given you. Take these things and and, and go and, and do what you've been encouraged to do. He encouraged them to take and read their Bibles. He encouraged them to give back to the Lord, to serve the Lord, to participate of the things of God. You know, in that day and age, they dealt with Christians that accepted the Lord and did nothing, just like we deal with in our day and age, except Christians that have accepted the Lord and never did anything with it. 
It's pretty much been the same all throughout century from the start of the church. But Paul is telling them, and he says, we do these things because it is our duty. Not because we have to and are under the law, but because we are under grace. Not because we have to, but because we want to. What does God's word say? If you love me, what will we do? We will keep his commandments. And so as I was putting this whole message together, and as we get into the first point here in just a second, I just thought through, and the thing that came to my mind was the greatest way that I could say thanks to the Lord for anything that He has ever done for me is just what Paul was teaching those people. Listen, you have the commandments. You have all the things that we've taught you. Now go. Go and abound more and more. Live that life. Serve the Lord. Love the Lord with all your heart. And go. And I would imagine, just like myself, that Paul would say the greatest way that any of those people ever gave thanks to him is as he watched those churches grow, as he watched those men that were under his leadership grow, and as they did what Paul gave to them. And so this morning... In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to hit on a few things going through this passage. The very first point here is moral purity. Paul is in a, talking to the Thessalonians who were in the midst of a, a very tough culture. They were in the midst of a, what the, the Greek culture and all of the, the hedonistic lifestyle that was the rampant in that day and age. And just like many times what we see in our day and age and in our cult, not so much in our culture as much as other foreign cultures when missionaries go in and other things, what, what oftentimes what they did then and what they do today is there may be a missionary that goes into the middle of a jungle and all they've ever done is all these different pagan worship type things. And what they do is they take Christianity or they take God and they just kind of lump it right along with other things that they've already done. And so in this day and age is no different Though we're talking here in moral purity and fornication and number of different things, but these folks would accept Jesus Christ, but they never stopped doing the things that was so natural to them in their culture. And so Paul is coming in and he's writing this letter and and starting in verse number three, it says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even of the, as the Gentiles, which know not God. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, and, and we kind of understand, again, without going into a great, great deal of history, we understand to some degree that these people were we're diving into the things that were very, very prevalent in their culture. Really not too much different from our culture in which we, we live. The things that we see on a regular basis, the things that our kids grow up seeing that's just natural to them. The things that we watch on television that 20, 30, 40 years ago would never have been on television. The things that's within our culture that it's just natural. It's not even an issue. It's not a problem that... 
that these things take place with immorality in our culture. They were dealing with that same exact thing. They would accept Christ. The church was accepting. And now all of a sudden that culture was permeating or permeating the church culture. Paul is encouraging them to live a life of purity. He said, is it the will of God to be sanctified? And part of that is to have moral and sexual purity. Sanctification is something that we all have based on our position in Christ. And again, I'm not going to do a lot of in-depth teaching on sanctification, but as far as when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you become sanctified, you become set apart. You be, that's just what you get out of our position of sanctification. However, holiness is something that we should desire, something that we develop, which is helped at church, which is helped through different things, but it's something we must do in our own quiet times and our own self-denial. So positional sanctification is something that we get in Christ. Practical sanctification is something where we ourselves grow and learn and become separated, so to speak, from the world in our, li- in our Christian living. We separate ourselves. We have to cultivate and pursue ourselves in this manner. It's not easy. It's something, though, that we must do. And Paul here is telling his people, telling this church at Thessalonica, listen, church, you must be set apart. You must be different from all of those things out here. And one of the first things that we've got to tackle is this area of our moral purity. And he teaches them and he shows them and he is telling them, for this is the will of God. And he continues to go through there. In verse number four, it, we see there that, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. And basically, and a really, really simple is what this is, is, hey, church, control yourself. He goes to the church, he's right into the church, he says, listen, you control you. I don't know how many of you with little kids ever say anything like this to your kids, but I say it often to my kids. Who are you in control of? Me? Then zip your mouth. Be in control of you. Worry about you. Don't worry about your sister or your brother. You worry about you. Are you doing what you're supposed to do? Well, no. Then don't worry about what they're doing. Because they'll get in trouble, right? So you worry about you. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and he says, listen. Mind your own vessel. Mind your own body. Get yourself under control and keep going right. It's my job that... I strive for sanctification. I strive for, for, for purity and for holiness and all of these things. It's, that's what my job is. That's what all of our job is. Part of my job is to encourage you to go home and read and study and pray and, and have a personal walk with the Lord. So that all of these other things would then line up. And as we do those things, in verse number 4, it just says, hey, real simple, get yourself in, in check. Hey, let's make sure that you're okay. In verse number five, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which knows God or knows not God. He was saying this. He goes in from the sanctification of separation. The pagans explored any and everything and didn't have a care in the world as to what they were doing. 
go downtown and tell somebody, hey, that strip club's not good for you. Do you think they care? No. They don't care. They're in Vegas, right? Anything that happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's the whole thing. Everybody comes to come here because nobody will ever find out what you do. We live our lives. So many people live their lives. I don't care what you tell me to do. That's not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. It's on television. It's on this. It's on that. Everything. It's fine. Nothing's wrong with it. They lived in this day the same exact way, the hedonistic lifestyle of pleasure, 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 pleasure. There was nothing that was against that. And here's what Paul says. Which, no, not God. He's going to the church and he's saying, church, they don't know God. You do. Live differently. Separate yourselves. Be sanctified. Be holy. Grow in Christ. Do all these things. They don't know God. They're looking to you to know God. And so as we go through and we look at thanks and we start going through all of these things, it is for us who know God to lead the way, so to speak, to have that separation. It is the same in our culture. And this is, this is the thanks that I'm talking about. To know Christ is to love Him. To love Him is to want to please Him. To please Him, we must keep ourselves pure. And in doing so, we give honor and glory, what we talked about last week, to the Lord. Romans chapter 12, and you don't have to go there, but you can maybe write it down. But Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And it's my job, it's my to be a living sacrifice, to present myself to Christ. Think about this. And then we're going to get into the next point here. We are created as human beings with emotion. We're created as human beings with a conscience. We're created with senses. We have five senses. We're created as human beings with a lot of different things. I don't know how many of you guys have dogs or cats or animals at home. Animals were created instinctual. They literally and simply do what their instincts tell them to do. They don't have the emotions and the senses and the things that you and I as human beings have in control. Yes, they can feel things, but they don't live in the same manner. They do what is instinctual to them. Why is it that when you, we watch the news and some lion tamer got attacked by a lion? Because it's an instinctual animal. And you can attempt to tame all you want. It's still an animal that deserves to be in the middle of a jungle somewhere that goes and pounces on a zebra in the middle of a jungle like we watch on National Geographic. Their instincts will take place at some point. Can we train them? Can we tame them? Yes. Here's the difference, and here's why I say this. We have control over all of these things that an animal has no control over. And so when we go through and we think about all of these things, we are created to have control over those. But even more so, God created us to have His control, the Holy Spirit, to live in us and to lead us and to guide us and to direct us through all of these areas of life. Not to just out of instinct go, oh, guess what? This is what we do. 
No. Because when I accept Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within me that allows me to have the power to overcome the things that my sin nature or my instinct, so to speak, would would come into. And if we look at that, you guys would know some of this stuff with me, but 1 Corinthians, it says it very simply in 2 verse 14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. They're dead. In the natural man, in our flesh, without knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior, I don't get it. I don't have the spiritual man. I don't have all of those things, so it is complete foolishness to me. If we continue to read in 1 Corinthians, we see again a passage that you, most of you could probably quote. But in chapter 3 and verse 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. The temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. As we look at all of these things, we see before Christ, it's foolishness. Spiritual things are foolishness. After Christ, we become a new creature. We are born again. We become all of these things and have a new nature and a new life. If we go back to Romans chapter 12 and go to the next verse there, in verse number 1, it says to present your bodies a living sacrifice. In verse number 2, it says, be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen, as we go through these things, and the whole point of this morning's message isn't just to talk about moral purity. But Paul told the church to be set apart, to be sanctified, to live holy. And he said, this is an area that you've got to tackle. I don't know if you understand this or if you follow anything or if you do any reading or do any research. But moral purity in our country has destroyed and is destroying the homes and destroying just about every facet of the life that we lead. The internet, a Facebook, the cell phone, pictures, the things that we have access to just like that that nobody in the world even knows that we've ever done. It's destroying many of your homes. And you don't even know it. Paul is warning them and he's telling them and he's saying to them, listen, this hurts. There is no greater thing in our society, to me, one of the greatest things that we need to tackle and to deal with and and correct is moral purity. Sexual immorality in all forms. It destroys the home. Well, I've never been caught. Nobody knows it. No. It destroys people as an individual. It destroys families. It destroys kids. I think it's age eight. The first child that your child sees pornography for, for, for the first time is like age eight. Man, that that's destructive. Moral purity. It hurts. In verse number six, it says it hurts others basically all around us. It doesn't just hurt you. And so as we go through and we wrap this little point up here this morning. We are called to holiness. 
We are called to be set apart. God sees us as in Adam, the fall, or in Christ. If we live by the fall or do we live by the call, if we live by the fall, we are controlled by the ruined nature. If we live by the call, we are controlled by the redeemed nature of God. God has called us to righteousness and holiness. In our daily lives, we exhibit one or the other in our character. It's in our conversation. It's in our conduct. It's in everything that we do, whether we're going to choose to live by the fall of man and by our sin nature, or if we're going to choose to live in righteousness and live based on the call of God in our lives. And it's that that allows us to say thank you in the greatest capacity ever is to live by the call of God on all of our lives by saying thank you and living our lives that way. The second point is our measured progress in verse number 9 if we look at 9 and 10. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do, not, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. As we look at this, the bottom line, if I don't know how many of you are business people, but the bottom line in business is what? Money. At the end of the day, it's the checks and balances, it's, the, it's the, the profit and loss statement. The bottom line is what we made or what we didn't make. And if we didn't make it, we got to fix it, we got to make it. Because if we don't make it, then we're done. In Christianity, in the spiritual life, Paul sets the bottom line for Christians as love. He speaks here in the, the opposite, so to speak, of what he just said. He just spoke on lust and that has no place in the Christian life. Now he's saying to have brotherly love. He's saying to love those that are around you. He goes on to even say, if, if we look at this passage, listen, you already know these things. We've taught you this. You know the, you know the Old Testament. You know in the Old Testament it says to love one another, love your neighbor as yourself. You know the love. You, it's, it's in you. You know this. But he continues to go on, he says, to love more and more. To increase in your love more and more. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to guess that you already know this. Love is a never-ending growth. I could probably have you guys stand up, those that have been married five years, those who have been married 50 years, and so on and so forth, and all in between. And you could all raise your hand and say, when I was married a year... I loved her, or I loved him. Being married now 11 years, my love is deeper. In 30 years, your love is deeper. In 50 years, your love is deeper, and so on and so forth. Love just doesn't stop. It's not like, okay, my quota for love is right here, and I've, I've hit it. No, love is never-ending. Love doesn't stop. And the same thing, my love for the Lord should never stop. Your love for God should never stop. Your love for your spouse hopefully doesn't stop. It should always grow and grow and grow and grow, and you should be growing in that love. Guys, hopefully you didn't set the quota and say, well, I love you this much and it doesn't get any more. No, it's never ending. You continue to grow. In my reading, I came across the story of a guy who served in the military overseas, and this is numbers of years back. But in his journeys of, of serving, he found a small church. Inside of that small church, there was Armenians, there was Russians, there was Jews, there was Germans, there was Britons. 
If you know anything about history, if you put all those people in one big room, that's not a good thing. Outside of the church, that's violence, that's hatred, that's war. However, there was love inside of the church because that is how Christ works in our hearts and in our lives. In this church, he found love, he found hospitality, he found generosity, he found acceptance, he found encouragement. Love doesn't, it doesn't see skin tone, it doesn't see all of the things that, that we see outside of that. Our love shouldn't ever become stagnant. We should always continue to grow as we see in verse number 10. It should, it should always increase the more and more. I'm going to tell you this story, and I don't, I don't know how much further into this I may, I may stop after this point, but I was reading, and I was reading this story, and some of you may know this story, but I was reading the story of D.L. Moody and his acceptance of the Lord. And I'm just going to kind of read off of my notes, and then I'm going to, I'm going to go into this point here. But D.L. Moody was led to the Lord by a Christian man who hunted him down in the back of a shoe store. He said, Dwight, you've heard it long enough. It's time you accept Christ. It wasn't too long after that which Dwight Moody accepted the Lord. But it wasn't long after that when Moody was approached by a Sunday school teacher who was dying of cancer. Didn't have long to live. He had a class of young people, none of whom he had personally won to Christ. He went to Mr. Moody to go, he wanted Mr. Moody to go with him house by house to share the gospel with each one of these young men. And so as Dwight Moody and this teacher, this Sunday school teacher, went from home to home, they led each one of those kids, each one of those people in that class to the Lord. D.L. Moody went on to say that he prayed this when he went home. He said, Lord, if you spare me, I'll spend the rest of my life the way that Sunday school teacher spent his last 10 days of his life, driven by the compulsive power of love to lead people to Jesus. If you know anything about D.L. Moody, he went on to lead thousands of campaigns and evangelistic rallies and a number of things all around the world. There's a Moody Bible Institute in Chicago that stands today where many, many years ago, D.L. Moody stood on a piece of empty ground and said and claimed that piece of land for the Lord. It was a number of years later that his heart gave out. And the doctor said, you must relax and slow down. Moody took the doctor's advice, began to slow down, and he went on a voyage. He went on a, on a cruise, I guess you could say, for that day, for lack of a better term. He went on a voyage to Europe, and he thought on this voyage the doctor was right. He said, you know what? I need to slow down. I need to relax. It was that same very night that he decided that he was going to slow down and he was going to relax, that the ship had a wreck in the midst of a storm. Moody stood by the rail of the stricken ship and prayed, Oh God, I'm sorry you had to remind me. Give me another chance. Spare the lives of those on this ship. I promise you, I'll spend the rest of my life the way that Sunday school teacher spent the last ten days of his life. And he did. You say, what does that have to do with anything? 
as I was reading, as I was studying, as I was going through this short paragraph that I read is a perfect picture of love and action. A man who was dying of cancer literally had 10 days that he went. He went and grabbed D.L. Moody and he said, listen, we got to go to all these people's houses and tell them about Jesus. And in the last 10 days of his life, he went house to house sharing the love of Christ for every one of those people. And I just took a gulp of guilt and shame and thought of myself. What if I loved every day like that man loved the last 10 days of his life? Sharing the gospel with people that are around me. Loving on people that are around me. Living every day that there was only one goal, there was only one option, there was only one hope, there was only one anything that mattered in life is to see another soul come to know him. I've only got one more day, I've got to tell everybody else that I can. That's called guilty conscience in my study this week. Because as I read that, I'm thinking to myself, I think I love people. I feel that I have a genuine love for people. I genuinely care for people. I, I, I love people. I love my wife. I love my children. I, but then I stop and I think, I've got neighbors that I've never told anything about Christ. I've got friends that I, I've never just blatantly said, hey, listen, I've got to share this with you. I've got people in my life that I've never done certain things along those lines, and I'd say that I love people. Love and action is thanking more than we could ever thank by just saying thank you. As we go about the rest of this series and as we look to today and we look next week and we go and talk about thanks and in your daily life we talk about thanks all the time. I teach my kids, say thank you, say thank you, say thank you. Listen, there's no, the greatest way, and I said this, what makes me happy is when I give my kids something and I never have to say, tell dad thanks. When I see my kids receive something from one of you and they say thank you without me having to tell them to say thank you. Man, that's a joy to my heart. Why? Because they got something a little bit. As a Christian, as a pastor, as a whatever it is that you are in Christ, What if we lived every day and God never had to say, hey, hey, Joe, make sure you say thank you. Hey, Aaron, why don't you go tell that guy? Why don't you go live the life that I called you to live? Just go do it. I'm going to close with this next point. In verses 11 and 12. He goes on to say, And that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. Paul speaks and says, Study to be quiet. 
there is nothing that really compares to a tender, quiet spirit. Have you ever met that person that's just, they've got such a sweet, tender, just a quiet spirit about them? Have you ever met that person that is the complete opposite? They're the most difficult person to work with, to get along with, hard to live with. They're touchy, they're stubborn, they're rude, they're opinionated, they're pushy. Everything sets them off. It's not the Lord at all. The Word of God speaks of striving earnestly to accomplish a goal, to be ambitious, to love, to honor, to esteem, to make a point of honor. When we look at this word, quiet, all of those things are in the definition of the Greek. Strive earnestly to accomplish. When you go to your study, are you studying to earnestly accomplish? Are you studying to strive Are you ambitiously studying? Our ambition is to be quiet. The word, again, to rest. Holding our peace. So as I look, I'm sorry, I said quiet, but the study is to be ambitious, to love, to honor. Quiet is to rest. So when I'm looking at this passage of Scripture, and it says... That ye study, that you're ambitious in your study to be quiet. Quietness is not something that we like very much. The generation in the day and age in which we live is not a quiet generation. Some of you right now have checked your Facebook message 850 times in the last 30 minutes that I've been standing here. It's went off 35 times. Your Twitter account has been off 10 times. You've got 32 text messages in the last 30 minutes. We live in a day and age where everything is just boom, 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 boom. We live in a fa- this Facebook and Twitter generation. Some of you, I get nauseous when I go onto my Facebook and I go, holy cow, what do they do all day other than post? We live in such a day and age where that's, there is no such thing as quiet. There is no such thing as stillness. And Paul tells these people, study, be ambitious to be quiet and at rest. To be quiet and at rest. And as we go on in this, there's so much more, but we live... There is no such thing as quietness. Everything about us is, if it's not the Facebook, Twitter, and all the social medias and Instagrams and all the things that we do, it's, I've got to make another dollar. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to go there. I've got to get this. I've got to go there. And it's go, 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 go. Why? Because we have to get to the next place to elevate ourselves to the next ladder so that somebody sees us to be whatever it is. Paul says, whoa, be ambitious to rest in Christ. As I was looking, I started to think to myself, hmm, how much of me is 
go, 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 where I don't just stop to study ambitiously and to get quiet in my rest? How much of, of me is all of those things? I have to catch myself from desiring to have a larger this or a, a bigger that or a larger congregation or all of these things instead of just growing in Christ and knowing who He is and resting in who He is. We become so ambitious in things that really have nothing to do with what I just shared with D.L. Moody, which has one more day, I've got to tell one more person about the Lord. And there's nothing wrong with being ambitious in in business. I'm not saying that. But when is the last time that we ambitiously studied God's word to rest and to just give ourselves to him and say, God, I need to sit in quiet and stillness and rest in you. We don't do it. Because even in our, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I had to take my phone this week after I was studying and I, I got a text message already. Awesome. I had to take my phone this week, put it somewhere else. So during my own study, when it would vibrate because I got an email or vibrate because a text message or vibrate for whatever it was, I had to, after reading this, I'm not kidding you, I was... I threw my phone away. Not away, but I put it in another room. Because in the middle of my study, I'm catching myself, oh, it, I got a message, an email, so I got to go check it. No, you don't have to go check your email every two seconds. We don't have to do that, but we do. We're inundated with everything. The Facebook the Twitters, a text message, and the busyness, and the busyness, and the busyness, and the busyness, and the busyness. Here, Paul is telling them right here. He says to rest in the Lord. And then he says to go on to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. And without going into detail, basically Paul was telling them. He had warned them that the second coming was coming, and they all said, hey, you know what? Jesus is coming back, so I don't need to work. I don't need to do anything, and you'll all just take care of each other. Paul said, no, go to work. Earn an honest day's wage. Do what you got to do, but rest in Christ to know that God will be back. Listen, church, I don't know if this helps you, but here's what I know. There is no greater way for me to say thanks than to live my life in my actions to say thanks back to God. Man, I love to sit down here and to worship I love to be able to sing and to be a part of the things and to do the things up here and just to worship. How about if I worship every day in my daily life and I say thanks through my worship of daily living? And here's what I'll share with you. When we do those things, when the afflictions come, when the hardships come and when the things come that we don't like and God says, and everything gives thanks, as he says in chapter 5 in the next chapter, my heart is right, 
my actions are right, and though I may not understand or though I may not like it, I can in everything give thanks because all of those things are lined up. Church, I don't know what did or didn't get you this morning. But I know the one, two things that got me personally. That little story of D.L. Moody going home that afternoon saying, Lord, if you spare me, I will give the rest of my life living like that Sunday school teacher for the last 10 days of his life. That's, is it tough? Yeah. You know what? One day we'll get to heaven and I'm going to, maybe we ask Dale Moody, was it worth it? Was it worth getting on whatever you got on to travel all across this great country and all across the world, pre-airplane, pre-all the things that he had to do? Was it worth it? Was it worth it to go back to a Dr. B.R. Lakin who traveled on a horse from town to town to town to town all over the Midwest and all over the United States of America to preach evangelistic rally after evangelistic rally after evangelistic rally? Was it worth it to get on a horse and travel that many miles and that many hours? My guess is they would say, yeah. To go back to Paul and say, Paul, was it worth it? To give everything you had to say thank you to Jesus. Was it worth it? Stoning? Prison? Abandonment? Hatred? My guess is when we get to glory, he's going to say, Aaron, it was worth it. Church, as simple as it was this morning, Are we saying thanks every single day by how we live our lives, giving that back to Him? Every head bowed, every eye closed. As we go into an invitation time, and again, I don't know what did or didn't jump out at you. And the the thought isn't that you would feel guilty. The thought isn't that that, it's... It's that we would stop in our lives and go, man, I need to live and say thank you in a better way. I need to live and say thank you because of all of what you had done for me.